Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. Hagelbon on Twitter, and I have with me uh, a friend of mine from Twitter, but also someone who has spent some time in the gaming industry, uh, one Alex Reed, at Alex M. Reed on Twitter. Uh, Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks Trevor for having me. Of course, absolutely. So you actually uh, came to me and said you had sort of an interesting uh, like an interesting perspective on on the professional, or uh, professional is the, bad, the wrong word, uh, on the gaming industry, let's say, uh, you know, I've had devs on it, had people who sort of do art and people who have been critics, people who have just been enthusiasts. Um, but you got to do something different than all of that combined. So, like, can you describe sort of what your role at this point was uh, in, in making video games? Yeah, absolutely. So, um you know, it's been a very long time now, but uh, right out of college, I uh, I got hired at um, a small sort of satellite division of Activision uh, that did all of their kind of, you know, licensed and uh, low-budget games. At the time, it was actually called Activision Value. Uh, they, <laughs> they later moved away from that. But yeah, that's a really, um, it's a really unfortunate name for any sort of studio. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I did about a year in the uh, in the QA trenches, but then um, after that, I was hired as a uh, as a you know assistant producer to actually work on you know kind of the really sort of the the project management aspect of games and you know the the kind of publisher side of things and you know a lot of the guests that you've had come from the the dev side but you haven't really talked to a lot of people on the publishing side which is a very different thing um absolutely pr probably equally misery you know or i would say <laughs> more miserable in a lot of ways but uh <laughs> definitely a, a different perspective on the whole thing well, yeah, and I, I think like I, I we we chatted about this a little bit off air, but like one of the um, one of the reasons for that is because you know I'll get I'll get people who say that they're either devs or or they work in the production end or whatever, and that they like the show, um, and then I'll turn around and say like, oh wow, I mean I don't do this anymore, but definitely when it was early on, I would say like, oh wow, do you want to come on? And inevitably they would just say, oh no no no, I have like thirty NDAs, I can't possibly come on. Um, so it seems like there's like there's a lot of secrecy there. There seems like there's a lot of sort of like inside baseball. Uh, it's very interesting, but it, I, I'm fascinated by this concept of a producer on a video game. This is something that's always bothered me. Um, not not like angrily, but uh, something that's always kind of stuck with me. So what does a producer actually do on a video game? I know like producers in in film, right? Like a lot of what they do is uh, they fund it. I mean, like if you're an, you know, if you're an associate producer or whatever on a, on a film or a TV show, a lot of times you've just handed over the dough to make it happen. Um, obviously that wasn't your position coming right out of college. So, um, what, what was your role as, as, as an associate or an assistant producer, excuse me? Well, so basically the, the gist of it was that, um, you know, because most of the stuff that, uh, that we worked on was really heavily driven by like the, 
the business and licensing end of it. Basically, you know, they're, I, I guess you would call it like a business development team would, you know, identify a license and say, okay, let's partner to make a game out of this thing. And, you know, would identify a, a developer that they wanted to work with and <clears throat> kind of get a general idea of what the scope of the game was. But then my responsibility was really to kind of uh, project managed the thing basically so that was okay. you know setting up the the kind of broad you know working to set up the kind of broad timeline uh you know for this the interesting thing was that because licenses kind of tend to have a an expiration date on them like basically who knows if this show or whatever is going to be popular <laughs> in the next 12 months um, right we had to kind of you know basically every game that we did was a 12 months or less turnaround from, you know, inception to ship date on the thing. Wow. So, um, you know, it was kind of like, all right, let's, you know, we lay out the schedule and then the producer is there to kind of handle, you know, do we need voiceover? Do we need like, do we need to shop out like a, a CG intro sequence for the game? Do we need to do motion capture um, and kind of coordinating all of that? And then also, uh, and then as the game was developed, really wrangling the, um, you know, the the QA process, which, uh, you know, people have a lot of big dreams about video game testing. It's a it's a deeply miserable process. Um, yeah. But uh, <clears throat> you know, so really just kind of, you know, seeing the thing through to actually get it out the door, and so that also would include things like you know the uh, ESRB submissions, which was always a, an interesting process for sure. And then also, uh, you know, because games that are being published by, or, you know, published on Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft consoles, uh, they have a really rigorous um, internal QA process that makes sure that, like, you're covering everything legally that you don't have like a button prompt for the, you know, for the wrong system that was left in there, you know, sure. that, yeah. that all of their sort of technical requirements are covered. And so there's a, a really long, a really substantial kind of submission process that goes into, you know, finishing a game off and getting it out the door. So at the end of the day, it's, it's project management, but when you're kind of working in the game hinterlands a little bit there, the producers also end up having a lot of input on uh, what the actual game content is because you're... Oh, interesting. <clears throat> yeah, because in a lot of cases you're working with, uh, you know, kind of foreign or, you know, not to denigrate these guys, but, you know, pretty frequently pretty like B-Squad dev houses uh, who, sure. you know, you're not your, you know, Treyarchs or your, you know, any big, big names, you're not uh, talking to those kind of people. So frequently they need a little bit of guidance. And then also like when you're dealing with a, a license, uh, they have to make sure that they're fulfilling all of those, uh, the requirements of the licensor. You know, we, we did some games for Shrek and Barbie and, uh, you know, nice. big deal. <clears throat> you know, uh, I remember it was a, a big joke for a while about, um, on, I, I want to say it was Penny Arcade or something about uh, Barbie Horse Adventures. Uh, yeah, we published Barbie Horse Adventures. That was I uh, was gonna ask. <laughs> I was around for that. So yeah. I think actually, like I think the crux of that joke too. I, I mean, this was this was this must have been a long time ago because this was when I was still reading Penny Arcade, which I think is past the over a decade mark at this point. Oh, and uh, also past the sort of uh, acceptable reading material kind of uh, point at this yeah. point. But yeah, yeah. Oh no, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think I think. I, think I can say I read Penny Arcade 15 years ago and still be considered an okay guy. Right. Uh, at this point, it's a little... Um, but the... Uh, no offense to anyone in my audience who might read Penny Arcade. It's just a little harder when you're 33 years old. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like, the... the the I think the joke there was that, like... Uh, uh, it was What was it? Was it Mike? Was it Mike's daughter really liked it? Like, one of their daughters, I think, really enjoyed the game. Or, like, they actually had good things to say about it. Which, like... I always find it kind of interesting. Um, I'm like, I'm super interested. Like, so, like, did you make games? I mean, obviously, uh, you meaning the studio. I'm not. I'm not trying to to make you an auteur here. But right. the, um, were you involved in making games that 
like you ended up feeling uh, did a good job. Like, do you feel like uh, Barbie Horse Adventures was the best Barbie Horse Adventures it could possibly be? <laughs> you know, uh, certainly that's uh, uh, probably a low bar. But um, you know, the uh, like honestly, and the the one thing that I worked on for a little while that certainly most of your listeners would be. Uh, most uh, familiar with and that my involvement win with would probably you know have me burned in effigy was uh, <laughs> was uh, Soldier of Fortune 3 or also known as Soldier of Fortune Payback um, <clears throat> yeah <laughs> and I you know I spent a little while on that I uh, it was kind of this weird situation where like this uh, and this is a little bit you know inside baseball but honestly it's been 10 years so i kind of feel like any nda i i had is you know nobody really cares anymore or so i'm hoping i hope i don't get sued and uh sorry but uh oh if you if you get if you get a uh, if you get sued <laughs> uh, i promise and also i'll keep keep this on the podcast i i promise i will take this down if if, uh, <laughs> if it is your if it is your uh, ass on the line i am i am legitimately not worried about it but uh <clears throat> so so during that process, basically, like um, the the developer that we were working with on it, which was not Raven, so people already were were kind of concerned about that. But uh, <laughs> it was sort of like, okay, we've got these guys making a first person shooter, so we will do Soldier Fortune, and then also we'll kind of take their second crew worth of development resources and make a. World War II, World War Two shooter, uh, and this was oh. this was the year before um, Modern Warfare came out. So uh, World War Two shooters were still kind of big, and so I, out of some misguided sense, sort of like felt bad about the state of this World War Two shooter. So I passed on, you know, it, basically, you know, my boss told me like me and the other assistant producer like one of you is going to deal with soldier fortune one of you is going to deal with uh worst game of the year nominee 2007 uh the history channel <laughs> battle for the pacific and out of some misguided something i was like okay fine i'll take uh, battle for the pacific obviously had much less visibility much less of the the development resources <laughs> pointed towards it so i spent about you know like three months working on soldier fortune and then after that it was all history channel for me um no and, i mean good news though i doubt a producer credit on soldier of fortune 3 would get you a lot of doors opened well, uh, actually, that uh, that guy uh, works at Bungie now, so... Uh, oh, okay, well, <laughs> I take it back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, this was, this was like, 10 years ago, uh, and yeah, I, I ended up picking up this deeply neglected game that really kind of no one cared about, and it got delayed and the whole thing was a mess and the game wasn't good, but like, yeah, oh. I'm not, I'm not particularly proud of it by any means but it was sort of just like uh one of those trial by fire things and then a couple years subsequent i did um animal planet vet life for uh for cool. 3d or not even 3ds regular ds and the wii when that was new and exciting and uh you know probably certainly the game i worked on that sold the best i want to say was uh Cabela's Dangerous Hunts 2009, um, which I, uh, <clears throat> which was okay. Uh, you know, not, I'm not going to say it was great hey, I mean, by I, any means, but uh, did it, you did know. it produce a hunting simulator? Well, so the, we did, I think, two Cabela's games every year, and one of them... <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, one of that them... That is ambitious of Cabela's. Yeah, and it, it tended to be like one of them was kind of a simulation-y one, and then one of them was... Uh, kind of a, a different direction for it. And so, yeah, that, I, you know, I, of all of the things I worked on, I probably feel best about that one. That or maybe um, sort of a hilarious concept was a game called Science Papa, where someone saw Cooking, <laughs> like Mama, Cooking Mama and said, hey, we got to gender this bad boy. And uh, Wow, that's yeah, a bad idea. Yeah, it was like the... It, it especially in retrospect still feels a little bit icky but you know what the it was a game that had some 
had some heart and it had some fun, you know, character design to it. And like, it, you know, it was it was fine again. <laughs> nice. No, I, I, I admire that. So, like, I, I have a ton of questions, but one question yeah. that I really don't want to miss. And, and, and this is something that's been been sticking with me since the beginning. Like, so um, uh, Karen Kilgariff is a, is one of the co-hosts on um, on this podcast, My Favorite Murder, that's much more popular than my podcast. Um that I listened to a while and had sort of lost track of, but one of the things that she said that really stuck with me is she worked on um, on late night shows. I don't know what in late night she did. She wrote for uh, Mr. Show for a while, but then I think like went and worked on, I don't know, Conan or, or whatever. Sure. Um, and she said that it, it ruined TV for her because everything she watches now, she knows all the beats. She knows when it's scripted. She knows when like, she knows like, in reality television, what's what's fake and what's real, like everything that everyone is sort of like, you know, sharing or whatever. She's like, well, this just is it's pointless to me. Like, I cannot watch, you know, live TV like this. It's horrible. Um, and I wonder, like, did I, I don't know if you were much of a gamer before, but like, did did seeing how the sausage get made make you less able to sort of enjoy games organically? So. I will say that I, you know, so I was I was laid off from from that job uh, as you know. There's a lot of a lot of turn in the world of video games. I also was kind of yeah. sh- was kind of shitty at that job. I was you know, <laughs> fucking 24 by the time I got canned. So uh, no one's good at a job by right, 24. Absolutely, absolutely not. No one is good at anything at 24. Um, no. And uh, be allowed to leave the house, right? And so, like you know, I, I don't have any particular sour grapes about that, and certainly it sent me off on a better career path. But I would probably say that for you know five years, maybe after leaving that job, I very rarely rarely played games. I like sold most of my stuff that I had because uh, you know, as a kid, I was super huge into it. In college, I was mm. super huge into it, and I'm you know. I'm definitely coming back around again. I have been in the last bunch of years, but definitely for a while, just the fact that I was sort of staring at a screen and so heavily involved with this, it wasn't so much that there wasn't stuff out there that I was interested in. It was more just that, like, I have been involved with this for too long and I kind of took a break. Um, Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think what... I think the uh, the thing that's more interesting for me that came out of it was not sort of whether I I like or dislike games or whatever, but it's it's kind of it's more that I have a, a different perspective on a lot of the kind of standard gamer kvetching about uh, about the state of games these days, <laughs> um, you know, and so be that like uh, you know about people complaining about, you know, downloadable content or price of games or, you know, anything like that. That's sort of where I I see it and it's like, look, man, you know, there's a there's a sort of business decision behind all of this stuff. And if you want a if you still want a sixty dollar game that has no add-ons to it or anything else, like you are so in the dark about, um, you know, what this process actually is, basically. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that seems like something that you would really get from the licensed games, too, right? Well, like, I mean, there, there's such a, and I'm not trying to even disparage them, like, there's such a, a sort of clarity to, to licensed games in that way. And, like, I think I've talked about this a long, long time ago um, with, uh, I think with, Donald Borenstein about the 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 way that licensed games look when they're like you know NES's uh, Blues Brothers or whatever when they're just clearly trying to make a buck. But I mean it's 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 especially interesting with games like I mean the Cabela's games really stick with me right where like if Cabela's is making a game there is no there's no ambiguity there they're not making it because they want to make some sort of artistic statement. They're not making it right, because... Right. They want to you know, build the brand. <laughs> right, yeah. Maybe they're making it because they think their customers might enjoy video games. I don't know. But it's certainly not because, like, they're committed to the genre or something, right? Like, yeah. and, and you have to kind of make that the best game you can as the, de- as the development, but 
because you wanted to sell because I mean it's just it that must have given such a clarity to that kind of like nebulous gamery sort of like oh well is this good video gaming or is it bad video gaming like that must have just like when you had to make the Cabela's game it must have been like okay I kind of get this a little more now yeah you know and it's it's interesting because I definitely existed in the industry very much at like a, a turning point um because it was just right pre-mobile games. Um, oh, okay. It was also definitely before um, before downloadable content was a thing. Like, I, I remember, in fact, that, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember which game it was, but it was while I was there that, like, uh, Microsoft first sort of started allowing on the Xbox like downloadable expansions and people had a lot of kind of big dreams about what that might be but yeah it was definitely a uh, kind of an industry turning point where this because these kind of licensed games really don't exist anymore it's all moved on to mobile uh, and, yeah, sure, and free to play kind it? of stuff and you know we had we had value in our name because Basically, everything we did sold for 30 or 40 bucks rather than 50 or 60. Um, but now, you know, if you're doing this kind of licensed brand building exercise, you put that to mobile first and foremost, and you would never even consider making a, a console game on that kind of subject matter. So it, it definitely was, uh, was just pre kind of the current state of affairs of, of you know, the, the sort of way that games are sold. I mean that's interesting. Do you think do you think your role in um, mobile gaming, like, if can you imagine your role sort of like translated to the mobile gaming uh, phenomenon at this point, or is it strictly sort of like based in that prosaic sort of like as you said, it's platform specific. It's it's it, there, there are all sorts of rules with the ESRB. Like mobile games are much sort of more the wild west um, in a lot of ways. Like. Do you think the role of producer, as you experienced it, would exist uh, in mobile games? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, uh, okay. like my my current career is in you know advertising, marketing, and I'm a project manager now, and that's sort of still what I do. But you know, you still yeah. need you still need to have somebody who's sort of rank like your timelines and your release schedules and keeping your design documents up to date and uh, you know with mobile, especially now, I think the one of the big things they have to talk about is, you know, what does the kind of monetization scheme look like and, you know, who's keeping track of those numbers and, you know, every, every project of this size needs some kind of project management like that. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's always going to be producers on this stuff. And I guarantee if you dug into your mobile game credits, it would exist in the same way. But the difference is that it's not like all driving towards one release date. It's much more, you know, kind of a, I guess, almost a software as a service thing where you're you're really kind of continuing to roll this game out and update. You know that your your last episode uh, with uh, I, I can't recall his name, but the guy who worked at uh, at GameLoft, you know. I, oh, yeah. I, I definitely uh, could see that. And yeah, he's, Tom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's the kind of person that in my old job translated to mobile, I would be wrangling and saying, okay, you know, our release schedule is that this month is when this, um, uh, what was it called? You know, symbiote event is happening. So yeah, you've right. got to, you've got to have this script written by X date so that you can hand it off to the artists so they can, you know, make the assets that they need in order to hand off to the coders and, you know, this is the lead time for Apple to release an update and et cetera, et cetera. So like the job is definitely still there no matter what. It's just uh, a little bit different in terms of, you know, the kind of driving towards a release that has to happen and things have to be cleaned up before it can get out the door rather than the kind of, uh, you know, rolling basis that mobile games tend to happen on now. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that you said it's sort of like uh, software as a service, too, because really, like, it seems like in the past, the birth of the game would have been the big thing, right? Like when it's released, the, the day you can get the cartridge or, or later on the day you get the CD or then even later on the day you could download it, whatever. But now it's like 
you know, the day that it starts is really important. And then the day that it dies is, is like equally as important when service gets cut off. Um, right. Like that was such a big deal with Demon Souls recently when they're like, we're finally turning off the servers. And everyone's like, wow, it's been a great game. And it's like, actually, it's you can still play the game. Like you could still, <laughs> you are still allowed to turn it on. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, and there were, even then, there were still some minor versions of that. So, like, with the Xbox and, you know, internet connectivity, you could have a day one patch that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you had to get it out the door and to manufacturing, you could still require, you know, a day one patch download that would, uh, you know, fix any outstanding issues that might have been left on the disc. And actually, even on... Um, disc only games if there was something that was like that was minor but during the submission process like the you know the platform holder sony microsoft whatever would prefer you to fix you could actually submit another version that would be uh basically updated in the next round of manufacturing Um, oh interesting yeah so you you had to that one was definitely um very iffy but uh you know, I, I'm trying to remember an example of it. I want to say it was one of the GTA games. I think it was San Andreas. And <clears throat> there was a, a series of missions that were, like, basically impossible. I think it was the, like, <laughs> David Cross RC plane mission or something like that. Okay, okay. <laughs> and there, at one point, uh, you know, basically uh, there was a, you know, a point in the manufacturing process where every disc after this date, the mission was a little bit different because it was like too hard to do. Um, and so, yeah, that was basically kind of a a rolling release bug fix. But if you got the disc before one date, it wasn't there. If it was after one date, it, it was. And, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So that didn't happen a ton and the kind of stuff that it happened with would probably be, invisible to most people like you know it's some weird wonky crash that only happened one in a you know thousand times but uh you know finally we were able to figure out figure it out and say okay in this next manufacturing run we will have this fixed and right and with digital it's you know that's completely different now of course but uh yeah you know the the sort of it's stamped onto the disc and this is what you get and you don't get anything else is a very very different paradigm to what we to what we have now well and i mean and it goes to your point about dlc right where like the idea of dlc or loot boxes like these things are the reason i think a lot of people find them so frustrating is because as they get bigger and as they become more and more part of the game, right? More and more part of like actually the base game, uh, so to speak, you get further away from that sort of like platonic version of gaming where you go and buy a game and you have the game. Like right, it right. very much is becoming just like everything else where there is an added cost after the fact. Well, and you know, and one thing that I had mentioned to you that always kind of bugs me when I when I hear about it is, you know, people complaining that like uh, you know, they took this chunk out of the game only so that we could, you know, so that they could resell it later because the DLC is coming out, you know, a month after the game launched or whatever. Why, why didn't <laughs> right. they just have it in there? But I think the thing that people don't recognize is that, um, you know, in an ideal world, <clears throat> your game should be done and wrapped, you know, three, four you know, I, I don't know exactly what it is now, but like two, three, four months before it's on the shelf. And mm-hmm. also the the people who would be working on new content are done with the game even a few months before that. So, um, you know, as, as, the, as the game is hitting stores, <clears throat> you know, it's not like they were like, okay, cool, we're done with the game, we're going to take this chunk out, set it aside, and sell it to you. <laughs> it's that... Quick, get this to the presses. Uh, right, right. It's that, you know, the the artists who were working on the original game, you know, six months ago were done with the new stuff, and so now they can work on the DLC, and it's the guys who are, you know, fixing bugs and then going through the manufacturing process. So it's it's not like these things happen concurrently. I'm Granted, I'm sure that... Uh, you know, there are definitely cases where it's different, where, you know, your DLC is just a 1K 
thing, you know, little trigger that unlocks something that was there on the disc, and you know, the we, right. you know, sure. we can quibble with that, but uh, the idea that it's like you know we're taking stuff out just to resell you, I don't think is as common as people think it is just because of the the way the production process works on these things well and yeah i mean like timelines seem really opaque i think to to most video game consumers i mean myself included um but what you say there makes a ton of sense and like it explains how uh i I can't remember the game this recently happened with but with uh, i remember with yakuza 6 um sega put it up on sega put the quote-unquote demo up on uh playstation network and it was um it was the whole game. Oh they yeah, yeah, accidentally yeah. Put I, the whole game up there. I remember seeing that. Yeah, um, and and it's like okay, um, that's bad. Right. But you could see why that. And like, I, but I think what baffled a lot of people was like, so the game's finished. Why can't we play it? And what you're saying here makes a lot of sense to me, which is like, well, yeah, of course, like the game's finished. Like it's. That's not the end of the process. Right, right. And, you know, and we never put out uh, demos because, like, putting out a demo is basically, from the production standpoint, like, the same as putting out an entire game. It has to go through the platform certification process. It has to go through the rating submission. So, like, if you're going to do a demo, it's not just like, oh, yeah, no, we're in a pretty good spot. Let's throw one out there. Like, that is absolutely something that you have to, you know, plan for from the get-go and so and i think that uh and obviously there's no platform holder on pc so there's still a lot of pc demos that exist but like there's a reason that console demos you don't get a lot of them because it's not like a half-finished thing it has to from the platform holders perspective be sufficiently finished in in such a way that they will allow it on their platform yeah you may as well have a finished game so right outside of any sort of like serious financial reason and in the case of yakuza 6 like maybe maybe sega wanted to include maybe sega wanted more visual uh or i'm sorry more visibility for the series before it was uh sort of continued in america right fine but certainly i could understand why you guys wouldn't care even for like uh, soldier of fortune 3 like why would you bother (laughs) right right yeah i mean yakuza is is, it was even still at this most recent one like kind of a weird and obscure game uh that like you have to tell people like, oh no, like for real, this is a game that's cool. Try it out. Maybe you'll buy it. Um, but if it's, you know, if it's something that people are going to buy anyway, then yeah, there's no, there's no point in, uh, burning the resources on doing a demo for it. Okay. Um, so, uh, I've been looking at some of the stuff we were talking about and, uh, before we went on the podcast and I'm just like, I'm fascinated with some of the things you have here. So, um, I'm going to go in order of what I really want to hear because I'm being selfish. Sure, um, go for it. So you are, you said that you want to talk a little bit about Q&A. We talked a little bit about Q&A testing and how, yeah. how crummy it can be. Um, and you said that it is, uh, and I'm going to quote you here, quote, very, very bad. Yes. Um, especially on the publisher side. And you said you might, you, you did it before, so you have some good stories. So um, yeah, I'm just going to, sure. I'm going to do the, the most hated prompt ever and just say, uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. So like I, I basically, you know, finished uh, college with a, uh, you know, degree in political science and film, which is, you know, kind of, all right, what the, what the fuck am I going to do with this? Um, you know, moved, moved back home that May and just went looking for jobs and, uh, randomly, you know, saw this thing. Like, do you, do you like video games? Do you want to test? Like, yes, I do. I would love to test video games. That sounds great. And so, um, you know, I got, I got hired doing QA for, uh, this was 2006 for even in 2006 a whole nine bucks an hour uh, wow yeah and uh <clears throat> and you know because we really worked on again this kind of seasonal cycle where basically all these games had to be out for christmas we never had more than a year to work on anything um it was you know uh Every single person in QA was contract, no benefits, no nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, basically we would, there would be, you know, 20 dudes in a small room with as many Xboxes running at the same time, uh, just playing these games for, you know, shifts were 12 hours long, you know, 10 to 12 hours long usually. And so like we, yeah, it kind of ended up paying okay because we got a lot of overtime out of it, especially like 
you know, when it was real ass crunch, when, you know, people were there every day, 12 hours a day for, you know, a month at a time, like from, Uh from a, from a kind of labor perspective, it was super, super grim, but at least, you know, the QA testers were getting overtime, but, um, you know, just to kind of give people an idea of what QA is actually like, because it is not just, you know, playing the game. There is usually like, so, you know, so the process would work on builds, you know, we would, we would get a new build and we would test it. We would log all the bugs and then it would go out and dev would send us another build with, you know, these are the things that, uh, we have fixed. So verify that we have fixed it and then keep Uh testing. And basically, you know, slowly but surely you're kind of narrowing down the number of bugs that are in the game. But what bug testing looks like. So the, you know, I think my first day there, I was testing, um, the, uh, the world series of poker game, uh, which was pretty significant because it was like, I think it was the first 360 game they worked on and it had, you know, 21 player multiplayer, three tables at a time kind of thing. Um, and it actually also used the Xbox. I think it was one of the first games to use the Xbox camera when it came out, which is a (laughs) thing that, uh, nobody bought or used since Um, nobody asked for this right or specifically i remember that the the game that people actually played that used it was uh uno for xbox 360 and basically you would just be exposed to an army of dicks every time uh, you (laughs) signed on to that game if people were using the cameras um but so the the game had character customization in it which is you know Cool. Uh, But so I was basically handed a printout sheet with a grid on it, or a a series of like seven sheets. And basically there was, on the the x-axis was, these are all the shirts in the game. On the y-axis was, these are all the hats. And then there were were seven sheets, each of which had the different, um, you know, casinos that you could play in. And basically it was put on this shirt, this hat, and load into this casino. And if there's something wrong with it, you put in a bug. If it's fine, you check it off. And so basically you're, you know, filling out... This is, so yeah, this is not playing a game. This is uh, like... This is filling out a spreadsheet. This is filling out a, you know, yeah, filling out a spreadsheet, basically. And so, you know, just so that, yeah, so people don't uh, get it twisted with what QA is. It's like... It is testing every combination of everything to make sure that something doesn't fuck up. And uh, and then, you know, we would be doing, like, network testing where it's like, okay, so player seven at this point in the turn, pull your Ethernet cord or eject your <laughs> disk or, you know, do X, Y, or Z. So, you know, and then, you know, once it, things that, you know, so poker obviously has its own stuff, but then even in, like, shooters you would spend your whole time kind of walking around the exterior of the level and making sure you, you know, couldn't fall out of the map or get stuck or anything like that. So, you know, it's, it is absolutely a brute force kind of job and you just need bodies and time to, uh, to find all of the stuff that's in these games. And, you know, it's, it's really a bummer because the, the job attracted obviously people who were, interested in games who didn't sort of have the I mean I don't want to toot my own horn too much or whatever but uh, you know it didn't have the kind of uh, you know most of them would never have had the the sort of social skills or education or whatever else to move up any further than that and you know that was sort of dangled in front of people but really what it was was like oh the season's over we're done testing okay everybody who's not full-time uh get out of here you can take unemployment and we're not going to contest it but like that that was it basically wow uh yeah so it was you know that kind of seasonal cycle was really really grim for a lot of people and you know i was sort of i was i don't know if lucky enough is the right word but you know kind of 
you know, gregarious and smart or whatever enough that, uh, you know, hassled my old boss and hassled the production department like, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to actually have a non-QA job here and, you know. Like, I'd like a job. Right. I would, <laughs> I would like some kind of job. And, you know, they, they did hire me, but like for a lot of the people there and, and the other thing that I think uh, is sort of unspoken in this is that you know, QA also is like a real ass job if for people who are very good at it and someone can be like a good tester because it requires a, a really sort of logical thought process and, you know, being able to write a good bug is an important thing. But honestly, a lot of the people who were involved in it were just were just sort of meat who happened to really like video games. And so they were willing to be exploited in a way that you know, kind of bums me out to to this day. That's real sad. That's yeah. actually that's actually really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and then you know, I as a as a producer there ended up being similarly. So I was hired for you know again. So now this is two thousand seven for thirty grand a year. And uh, okay, better than know, nine dollars an hour. I mean, better than nine dollars. Well, it depends on how sort much of. overtime they yeah, were getting. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, That's the beauty of salary. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, uh, towards the end of some of these games, you know, I was sleeping at the office. I would only go oh. home to shower, you know, working 100-hour weeks kind of thing. Like, And again, I was, you know, pretty shit at this job because I was a child. But still, it's like, you know, this is this is a lot to, to put on any person. And... I think that's kind of the insidious thing about the industry and why it's nice to hear, like, on this show, people talking about unionization efforts and things like that is just that, you know, there's there's sort of this implicit threat that if you aren't putting in more hours than the next guy, there is some other nerd out there who will work twice as hard for half as much money just so they can, you know, get their get their foot in the door. And it was even worse yeah. in... In this case, because it was in, you know, Minneapolis, which is not like exactly a hub of the games industry, um, that, you know, it just, uh, it was pretty easily exploitable and I was, you know, happily exploited and it really wasn't until a lot of years later, post layoff, that I realized like, man, this really was a shitty way to do business. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's 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 become such the norm too, which like, I, you know, something I, I talk about a lot with... Um with academia and, and, you know, like I, I'm an adjunct and that's fine. And I, I, you know, I like my job just fine. Obviously, you know, I like it a lot more now that no cartridge is around and it's sort of like a second job that has more of a future. Um, but the, you know, like the fact that even getting an adjunct job now is, uh, hard, like the, the, the level at which everything in the academic sphere is, yeah, well, you're still doing. You're still teaching, though. Like you're still you're still in the academy, and you never know what can happen then. Like it, it really like there's a lot of similarities here, and it basically it's just like people who really enjoy or are good at something that is not profitable uh, can just get exploited. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely the case, and um, you know, I, I I you know I don't know what the what the right answer to it is. I mean, certainly some of the labor issues that you talk about on the, on this, like that's moving in the right direction, but you know, there is also kind of just a, at the end of the day, like a, a supply and demand sort of thing. And you know, the, the worst sort of the worst person who we always talk about, and it's, I know it's kind of an internet trope as well as, you know, the person who wants to get into the industry because they're like, they're an ideas person. Like we've I've oh, got, yeah, a, sure. right. I've got a lot of good ideas, but I'm not an artist. I'm not a programmer. I'm not a, I'm not a project manager. I'm not an anything. It's like, this is exactly the kind of person who will get sucked into, you know, a low paying QA job in the hopes that, uh, They'll you know, meet, you know, they'll meet Hideo Kojima in the elevator. Right, like, right. Yes, Alan, right. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And, you know, there was, a, you know, part of the, the bugging process was that, you know, they were entered in sort of order of severity from, you know, C to A, where it was like, this is a little minor graphical issue, or this is a 100% crash that stops pr progression all the time. But you could also put in comments. And um, oh. the the kind of testers who were 
real heavy on putting in comments. Uh, it was it was definitely clear, you know, which sort of ones those were. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, that 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 sounds rough for yeah. <laughs> for everyone involved. And it's like it, it's not always even that the comments were bad. It was just like you know, okay, that's that's great. This should have been written into the design document nine months ago. For this, it's not like you can just be like, "Oh yeah, no, yeah, that's a really good idea. Let's just do it." Like, uh, yeah, no, yeah. we'll just we'll have the guys whip it up for you, and you know, <clears throat> and like, I, and even now, you know, I, I I work in advertising, I work in client service, and you know, that's unfortunately sort of the lifeblood is that a client can tell you, "Let's just do this," and now we have to actually figure out a way to do it because that's how that works, um, but. It's sort of, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the, if it, if it wasn't contingent on, you know, your billable hours, you wouldn't have the, the low level guy sort of directing your campaign or whatever. So, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <clears throat> and, and so like, it's, it's interesting that it's interesting that you compare the two. Cause I think like, and maybe it's just because we've all seen Mad Men and whether or not that's, you know, accurate or not, we sort of have a feeling that we understand how advertising works. Um, on some level, but, and you've cast a lot of light on it, but like, it seems to me that what publishers do, which is something, you know, I had no idea about, um, is that they just basically push the, the product through, like they push it through all the parts that no one wants to think about, um, and get it out to market. Yeah. I mean, uh, basically that's, that's what they exist for. You know, it, it definitely depends on the relationship with, you know, because a, a developer that's more of like an auteur and they, you know, it could be a thing where the developer is shopping something around to a publisher that they're mm-hmm. working on, which was not the case that I was working on. For us, it was more that, you know, we have a license. This is kind of generally what that game is going to look like. Let's shop it around to a developer who's actually going to be able to build this thing uh yeah to a, a you know a minimal level of quality but yeah then it was the whole like okay we're gonna deal with the the uh, you know doing all of the legal and the marketing and the manufacturing and everything you know that's those are the relationships that a publisher has that uh, and you know again that's changing a lot with uh you know especially on the pc with steam and everything else but uh if you're and digital distribution, but if you're putting something out on a disc for a console, like you probably are going to need to have some kind of publisher relationship these days. And it's, yeah. it's a little bit different now, but still kind of at its base level, that's, that's the state of affairs. Hmm. So, um, you also talked to me a little bit about, uh, mid market games. And, and this is something that's really interesting to me. Um, and then I'll, I'll, you actually, like, when we were talking, you had a bunch of little ideas, so I want to give you sort of, like, a grab bag of stuff that you can talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm interested in this as, like, a major point, because I think it's really smart. Like, you compared, and, of course, now that I know you were a film major, it sort of helps. Uh, I, I kind of understand where this is coming from now. Um, I taught exactly one film course and took exactly one film course, so, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big-time expert. But, um, uh didn't even come off sarcastically. I want to <laughs> not a big time film expert, but the um, you made this point that mid budget games are sort of going the way of mid budget movies because of uh, budget, effectively, um, and 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 that's sort of like kind of a, a tautology. But you can't really make you can make a cheap game and a cheap movie, and you can make a monstrously expensive game or monstrously expensive movie. It's very difficult to make sort of like any sort of movie or game in between. Um, and more and more. So I sort of understand why that happens with film, right? Like Infinity War must have been astronomically expensive to produce. Right. And it produces astronomical profits. Um, whereas, I don't know, something like Sicario or um, I, I don't know. I don't know why Sicario came to mind, but th- sure. That's a perfectly um, probably, good example of it, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Probably like a lot less to make and made a lot less. And, and so those are our two versions. Like. I can go see Infinity War and a bunch of movies like it in the theater. Uh, Sicario, I'm probably, I might see it in the theater. I'm probably going to have to go to an indie house to watch it or just get it on Netflix or, you know, rent it or whatever. Um, and those are the two movies. It's There aren't a lot of, like, 
I don't know, like mid mid realm budget movies living in the theaters anymore. Um, so how do you how do you see that happening with games? Like how are how is that gulf widening? Well, I mean, I think that the the root. Uh you know the the root cause of it is is the same for both, which is basically that like this shit is expensive to make, and if you're gonna put a <laughs> lot of money into it, you had absolutely better make sure you're gonna make your money back on that. Um, well, I mean, Cliff Blazinski just proved that to all of us. Right, right, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I saw that uh, that whole thing was uh, was shutting down yesterday, which. Uh, uh, what was what was the the new one with the the oh, BMX uh, bikes? Heights, yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. I I never actually played, but sort of looked you know vaguely interesting as a as a child it's, of the eighties. Like uh, it's such a shame it, that like on the uh, like on his third swing he came closest. Like, right, it's, it's, right. It's such the it's such the you know pop fly that looks like a home run off the bat in the ninth inning. <laughs> it's just like sorry, we're shutting down. Yeah. And it, so it's it's kind of this combination of like a you know if you're if you're going to make something you absolutely have to guarantee that it's going to be a success. So that means that uh, you know you pour all your resources into the big hit and you kind of do a, a lowest common denominator thing. But then it also has to do with the the distribution channels because you know in the case of film it used to be that you know okay i have made this little low budget indie movie and i'm going in you know it used to be that like you would show it at can and hope that somebody picked it up for distribution and hope that it was like this this one off that made a ton of money but now those kind of little weird projects are the sort of things that can get picked up by netflix or even you know or even can self-finance themselves on something like on something like YouTube, um, right? And it's kind of similar for games. Whereas you know we used to have this line of like value games for you know misguided grandparents to buy for their kids <laughs> because it has a, a character that they recognized on it. It's like <laughs> no, now we have these different channels. Like you know if you're if you're a big brand who wants to put out a game, then you do it on the phone because there is literally zero barrier to entry outside uh, on that outside of a you know ninety nine dollar a year like Apple Dev subscription. Or if you're you know uh, an absolute sort of bare bones indie person, you put it out on PC first, you kickstart it, and um, oh, and you know you hope that it gets picked up in a way that it expands out to consoles. But so. The the idea of a of a boxed game that costs forty dollars that isn't more efficient to distribute through some <clears throat> some other channel is like just a you know just kind of a non-existent thing now and it's it really is a <clears throat> I think a combination of development costs these days and the sort of wealth of distribution channels and hmm. so yeah it it sort of works at those two fronts at the same time and but yeah you know i it, the same way that we don't see basically the only sort of mid budget movies we see now are like you know horror movies there's not a lot right. of like you know rom-coms right horror movies rom-coms that kind of thing but there's uh, and then on the other end you have like your super indie prestige stuff but there's not just like a solid middle ground action movie that comes out in the middle of the summer like that's a super rare thing to see now and it's it's kind of the same thing with games and mm. i and you know i think this also ties in a lot to you know people's complaints about um you know downloadable content and whatnot because basically you know you keep in mind that the price of a game hasn't changed for 10 years, but the size of staffs and development costs and whatnot have, you know, skyrocketed, sk absolutely skyrocketed. You know, if you, you know, one rough metric that uh, you think about is, uh, you know, if, if you're doing a total like blended rate of man hours that it takes to make a game, like you generally want to spitball like 10 grand per month per person. Um, is kind of Man. is kind of just a starting point, and so you know you look at just watch the credits of any current AAA game, and like ten grand on every person in that credit, right, right, and you know, granted, there are efficiencies now, like you you can outsource a lot of uh, you know you outsource art to China, and you have better tools that 
exist and you you know so yes there are efficiencies but it's still just a fucking lot of people who are touching this thing and so um you know and so with the fact that the game still costs the same your break-even point is like just wildly higher than it used to be and so there's there's really no other way to support that model outside of you know with loot boxes or expansions or whatever else it just uh, right. there's no other way to do it so you know uh, people who and the other thing that's wild to think about is you know uh, Fantasy Star 4 in uh, probably 1995 maybe uh, that cost $99 at launch and <laughs> no way, really? yeah no absolutely well yeah and uh every single n64 game cost more than 60 dollars when it came out like i remember that yeah, yeah it so, cost around 80 right right and so you know and obviously yes you're saving money on manufacturing costs so that's kind of like shifting some of that but still just like you know there's more and more going into these that just is not uh, being recognized in the cost of the game. And so that's where you end up with this kind of like, you know, software as a service subscription, uh, you know, have to have sort of eyeball time. I, I honestly, when I was at Activision, thought that kind of the next frontier of that was going to be sort of more similar to where the web was going. Um, there was a game we were working on and... Uh, there was a middleware company that was kind of pitching us basically like similar to, you know, Google ads within the game where, you know, we can, we can dynamically put an advertisement on a billboard in a game and we can actually give you the metrics of like how long in game people are looking at it and like what that engagement (laughs) is. Um, and sort of, I thought that at the time that that was going to be the way that things went with games because no one had really gotten super creative with the free-to-play stuff yet, so we kind of didn't see that coming yet. But, um, yeah, absolutely thought that kind of product placement was going to be the way to do it, which it ended up not being. But, uh, you know, yeah, you gotta you got to recoup those costs someplace. Hmm. Well, that's all super interesting, I, I and I have... You know, I think you've said it. I I could say things, but I think you've left it at a perfect place there. So I think it's time to give you, um, and this is actually kind of like an interesting thing. You gave me like we were talking. You gave me a ton of bullet points, which is great. You clearly work in um, in a real job uh, for people who uh, uh, want like portfolios and stuff because it's like super helpful for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you, you, I love you, bullet you points. Be, oh yeah, no, I mean who doesn't? Um, I guess a lot of people don't, but I do. Yeah. Um, but the um. You had this last thing at the end where you were just like, here's some random stuff I like. Sure. Um, So I'm going to give you, uh, I'm just going to say the words, and you tell me in like uh, one or two minutes uh, for each of these, it could be less than that too, uh, what they spark for you. Yeah, let's go for it. uh, Lightning round, first no cartridge lightning round of all time. Let's do it. Um, All right, here we go. Diegetic interfaces. Ah, yes, I, I love this. So, do you do you know? I guess for the listener to explain what uh, what diegesis is is yeah. uh, is Probably basically reasonable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is definitely like some film nerd film school shit. Uh, basically, you know, if if sound is diegetic, that me it's usually referred to. It usually refers to music. If it's diegetic, that means that it is actually coming from a physical source within the film. Like there's a boombox that is playing a song. And non-diegetic music would be like a score where there's nothing in the world of the film that, uh, you know, that the sound would be coming from. And, you know, sometimes things play with this like uh, where someone will be driving in a car and it sounds like it's non-diegetic music but then they turn off the car and the radio stops and it's like oh this was actually the music playing in the car so um something that i'm really into and you know from sort of digital advertising like ux is a big thing that i deal with a lot uh as, and so what is a what does a diegetic interface look like is basically you know the the kind of easiest version that people of it see the most is uh you know like in halo where the number of bullets that were left in your gun were actually on a readout on the gun itself um and so that well, would, that's cool that would be kind of an example of a diegetic interface and then there's kind of 
sem- I guess you, I don't know what the right term is, but like a semi-diegetic interface, which is like where in uh, you played Dead Space, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when you bring up the menu, the menu is actually something that is projected out of your suit. And mm-hmm. it's something that the character would hypothetically see, but the character also wouldn't be seeing, you know, the button prompts that you personally are supposed to <laughs> Save be. Game and yeah, stuff. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. Exactly. Um, but so th- I think towards the end of my tenure there, one of the uh, one of the uh, I want to say it was for a fishing game. Uh, something that we did for like a diegetic interface was basically that. Um, the tutorials for how to use different like lures or something were actually written on the back of the package for the lure. So oh, that's cool. So you would like you know bring that up in front of you and read the package, and this was how you would actually use the thing. And so um, yeah, I, I so I, I think that there's there's a lot of fun stuff there, and you know interfaces get more complicated or less complicated depending on the genre but uh you know it's always fun to see when people uh and you know cuz i i'm sure this has been codified by people smarter than smarter than me but uh you know the kind of the diegetic interface i think is something that you're going to be seeing more specifically called out because it really, especially for things like VR, it it really does kind of help with immersion mm-hmm. when you can convey information through the world itself uh, without you know throwing something floating up in the corner of your vision. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Dreamcast. Ah, uh, the Dreamcast. So <laughs> I I I think um, now at this point the. Uh, the elder statesman of this podcast, not by much, but uh, I am I am older than you even. Uh, so you amazing, know, yeah, I know, right? So rare these days, right? Right. So uh, you know, Dreamcast came out famously nine nine ninety nine, and at the time I was in. So it's it's easy to remember because that means I was in ninth grade in ninety nine. Um, oh, you mean one year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, but so I, you know, I just have such deep love in my heart for that system because it, you know, uh, yes, I guess the N64 beat it to having four controller ports at the same time, but, um, you know, the, so many of the weird, like Sega AM2 arcade board ports, um, you know, this was the kind of stuff that this was the board that ran, you know, Crazy Taxi and House of the Dead and kind of all of those great late 90s Sega arcade games when arcades still existed. And it got a lot of like great weird ports from Japan. I a game that I still have such fond memories of that I don't know if you ever played, but like maybe if we have the the opportunity to find a way to fucking emulator stream it there is a game called yeah. there is a game called zombie revenge for dreamcast and it is a it is basically house of the dead meets uh streets of rage and it is a game oh, wow. it is a side-scrolling beat-em-up with zombies and it's wonky as hell and i still to this day will remember the like arcade voice prompt whenever you picked up bullets that just went like bullets in this really strange voiceover but yeah uh so many, so many underrated, uh, underrated Dreamcast games, and I, I miss it dearly. I'm a Jet Grind Radio fanatic. Right, uh, right. I, I played that game to death. Yeah. Uh, so I hear you. Yeah. I totally hear you on that. Um, here's something I'm interested in: Couch Co-op. I love Couch Co-op. And, talk to us about that. And this absolutely, you know, fits in with the Dreamcast. And this is this is something that. I just is is so sorely. I the one thing that I still haven't played recently the, that's recent is um, Overcooked, which everybody tells me is absolutely like the best couch co-op game that there is because you will get in fistfights with your friends over over <laughs> See, that there game. There it is. That's yeah. right. That's exactly. what, what good co-op does. Right, right, and you know, it, and again, like sort of coming of age in the you know in the early to mid nineties and, you know, N64 Dreamcast, you know, everybody our age, I think has very fond memories of, of GoldenEye, which is nigh unplayable these days, but, uh, Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, and, you know, and I think part of it is that, um, the, it's, uh, with the emphasis on like, on graphics, especially in things like shooters, no one wants to put in the time to, you know, the kind of processor resources to make split screen work anymore. 
And, you know, mm-hmm. split screen's kind of a weird anyway, but, um, you know, it's just a, it's an emphasis in games that I really, uh, I really feel like we're lacking these days. And kind of fighting games are, are it. Those are the only things that you are guaranteed to have, you know, a couch version of no matter what. <laughs> um, and I, that's, I think, what a lot of what is really exciting about the, the Switch is that, like, you know, they're, they're sort of pushing it as a social thing. And I was a few months ago at a, uh, stereotypically enough, at a bachelor party in Vegas for a friend of mine. But uh, There you go. We, but we spent... <laughs> Why not? Right, right. And it's just like, okay, fine, yeah, this is, we'll do it. I, it's the, you know, the only time I will probably go to Vegas. But we all uh, sat around playing, you know, getting hammered and playing those uh like some of the have you played any of the jackbox games um the ones where i think so so you know it's they're like kind of word games and board games and quiz games but everybody sits around the screen and plays the game itself on your on your smartphone um, okay yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. so and yeah. we like well it's the Quiplash and uh, you know there's a bunch of them but like oh I've heard of Quiplash <clears throat> yeah yeah but this is it it kind of was the best throwback to like proper couch co-op in a very long time and it was absolutely absolutely a blast so and you know part of it is becoming an adult and not you know having five friends at your house all the time and so maybe it's just nostalgia for time gone by but uh, you know I I I encourage all developers out there get get couch co-op in there. It's just good for people. I think bring couch co-op back. Right. And I you know yeah. and I I legitimately do think that in some ways it is a it is a social good because uh you know people playing at home with their headsets on isolated just screaming obscenities into their into their mics like scream obscenities at your friends. So that's uh it's <laughs> it's good for personal development for people. There you go. I like it. Yeah. Um, well, and the last one on there, I actually want to save until we stream, which is aesthetic versus gameplay genre, which sounds like Zombie Revenge would kind of be perfect for. Oh, yeah, sure, uh, sure. <clears throat> so, um, Alex, is there anything that you feel we left out? No, nah, man, I, I think this was uh, I think this was a really a really good conversation. Uh, yeah, it was, I had it was fun. Great talking to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you too. So people can find you people can find you on Alex M. Reed. Uh, where else? Are you doing anything else? Anywhere anywhere people should be uh, looking for you? So yeah, I, I tweet only periodically. Um, also that same thing on Instagram where I post pictures of my small idiot dog and uh, Gundam models that I'm building because that's my my dumb solo nerd hobby is uh, is building Gundam models, and also sometimes I stream myself doing that on Twitch. Uh, very, you know, occasionally, but I'm trying to do it more. So uh, very cool. Also, twitch.tv slash Reed. Yeah, yeah, do it. That's great. All right, man. Well, uh, come back anytime. This was a blast. Yeah, no, it was great talking to you, and I'd I'd love to uh, to stream some virtual couch co-op Dreamcast games or something like that. I would that would yeah, be man. awesome. I'll I'll go track down a good emulator. Hell yeah. <clears throat> All right. All right. Talk to you later. Great. Dude. Thank All you. Right. Bye.